11 a.m., September 28, 1953, Kansas City, Missouri. A taxi pulls up to the French Institute at Notre Dame du Sion, an exclusive private elementary school located in the fashionable Hyde Park section of Kansas City. A respectable-looking 40-ish woman steps out of the cab, asks the driver to wait, and rings the bell at the front door of the school. The French nun in charge of welcoming visitors, Sister Moran, is a kind soul who immediately senses the uneasiness in the woman and lets her in the door. The woman relates that her sister, Mrs. Virginia Greenlees, has just suffered a heart attack. She needs to pick up her six-year-old nephew, Bobby, to go to the hospital. Bobby is fetched from his first grade Latin class. The woman takes his hand. They walk out of the school and get into the waiting cab. Not long after, Mother Marthana, the principal of the school, returns to her office and is told about Mrs. Greenleaf. Concerned, she asks what hospital, but Sister Moran is not sure. Mother Marthana calls the Greenleafs home and is surprised when Mrs. Greenleaf answers the phone herself. How are you feeling, she blurts out. Why, just fine, says Virginia Greenleaf. Why do you ask? And so the nightmare begins. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Dear listeners, I have had a sinus infection for over a week now. I think I've turned the corner, but let me apologize in advance for the sniffs 
and the scratchy voice, please just ignore it. I'm not going to sound better anytime soon, and I'm done with this case, and I want to get it out there so you can listen to it. Okay, let's dive in. This week's case is one of America's most famous kidnappings. A huge story in its day. I first heard about the case, oh, um, four or five years ago. I watched an episode of A Crime to Remember about it on uh, ID, um, Investigation Discovery, the channel. I think that series is one of the better ones on IDTV. The reenactments are very good, not lurid and cheesy like they can be. The author of a book about the case is on that episode, John Heidenry. That is H-E-I-D-E-N-R-Y. His book is Zero at the Bone, which at the time I ordered, and I remember reading it and thought it was really good. So I got it out again and read it over Christmas, and I thought now might be a good time to do a podcast on this abduction. There is a ton of information about the case online. The FBI reports are online. The stories all over the newspapers of the day. I particularly used the Kansas City Star and oh and the Kansas City Times was also still in operation then. And the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Chicago Daily News. TV was growing in 1953, but this story was big. It was on the nightly news for weeks and in movie newsreels. I found one of the newsreels on YouTube, and it's really worth a look. It's very short. And there are a couple of other good videos out there on YouTube. One is by a guy who drives around to where the events happened in the case. I like to do that when I'm researching a case, but he did a really good job of showing the sites. So thank you, whoever you are, for saving me a lot of driving. I I didn't catch his name, but the YouTube channel is Landum C Goes There. That was L-A-N-D-U-M, the letter C, Landum C Goes There. Looks like there's also a segment on uh, Deadly Women. That's also on ID. I don't remember that episode. So anyway, I put a lot of links in the show notes, but if you Google Bobby Greenlee's kidnapping, there are pages of links. Definitely not a shortage of information about the case. Now, this case is not like the Lindbergh more famous kidnapping. Here, there's no mystery or controversy or conspiracy theories about it. No Nazis involved. We know what happened and who did it, and justice is very quickly served. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about...
Robert Cosgrove Greenlee Sr., the wealthy father of little Bobby, is 71 years old in 1953. As an ambitious man in Kansas in the early 1900s, Greenlee quickly realizes the potential of the young automobile industry and gets in on the ground floor. He concentrates on the marketing and sales side of the business and soon becomes a major owner of car dealerships all over America. By the 1950s, he is one of the largest stockholders in General Motors and is estimated to be worth over $20 million. Let's see, rule of thumb, estimate listeners, that's 50 years ago, maybe five or six times that amount. So Greenlease is probably worth well over $100 million in today's dollars. Robert and his first wife, Bessie, or maybe Betty, I saw both in the genealogy sources, are married for quite a while. They have one adopted son, Paul, who is in his 30s in 1953. He has a wife and children by this time and works closely with his father. Robert and Bessie divorce in the late 1930s, and Robert very quickly remarries. He's nearly 60, and his new wife, a nurse, Virginia Pollock is barely 30 at the time. A daughter, Virginia Sue, is born in 1941, and Robert Jr., little Bobby, is born in 1947. They live a quiet, very upscale life in Mission Hills, Kansas. Lister's Mission Hills is part of wealthy Johnson County in the Kansas City metro area. Mission Hills is absolutely the richest part of Kansas City, old money and new money. In fact, it's one of the wealthiest areas in the whole United States. It's essentially a little town, only two square miles and about a thousand people, just on the Kansas side of the state line. Development there was started by prominent real estate developer J.C. Nichols of Country Club Plaza fame, if you're familiar with Kansas City. In the early 1900s, Nichols foresaw the great financial potential of creating a planned suburban area outside the downtown part of Kansas City. Mission Hills grew into a beautiful concentration of mansions, parks, and country clubs. If you're wealthy and famous in Kansas City, it's not unlikely that's where your mansion is. Off the top of my head, uh, the H&R Block, income tax people, the Hallmark family. Well, actually, it's, it's the Hall family. It's called Hallmark Cards. Uh, and Ewing Kaufman, the owner of the Kansas City Royals baseball team. Anyway, people like that. Listeners, the Casey Junior League used to do a tour uh, at Christmas time of some of those mansions in Mission Hills. One of my girlfriends talked me into going on the tour back in the 1980s, and I can still remember it. The homes were just breathtaking. Okay, enough gushing about Mission Hills, but if you're in Kansas City, it's definitely worth a drive through there. The Greenlease home is a huge red brick mansion, ivy-covered, really lovely. It's still there. 
The address is 2920 Verona Road. Robert and Virginia and their children live happily, quietly, as far as we know, there. Robert dotes on his young children. In fact, he's the one who most days drives the children to school just a couple of miles from the house. Virginia Sue doesn't attend Notre Dame du Sion anymore. Just that year, she's moved on to the premier girls' school in Kansas City, Sunset Hill School. If you're familiar with private schools in Kansas City, Sunset Hill eventually merges with Pembroke Country Day School, still a very ritzy private school. So the Greenlees family is living a quiet, albeit very privileged life. The children are bright and pleasant, by all accounts. In their pictures, they're sturdy, sweet-looking, open-faced, with uh, shy smiles. Honestly, they look just like their mother, Virginia the older. She's tall and placid-looking. My guess is they're nice to the servants and very good neighbors and very good citizens. They're devout Catholics, not flashy or famous at all. That is until 1953, when six-year-old Bobby is taken from his school and they become one of the most well-known little families in America. The woman who calls at Notre Dame de Sion to pick up Bobby Greenlees is not Virginia Greenlees's sister or any relation at all. She is a kidnapper. Her name is Bonnie Hetty, H-E-A-D-Y. She's born Bonnie Emily Brown in 1912 in Nottoway County, Missouri. That's up in the northwest part of Missouri. Her father is a well-to-do farmer, French Brown. Unfortunately, her mother, Mabel, dies when she's only two years old. I'm not sure what the deal is with the family. Her father remarries a year later, but it appears that Bonnie is primarily raised by her mother's family, Mabel's mother and brother and sister. The 1920 and 1930 censuses show Bonnie living with them on a farm in Nottoway County. Bonnie goes off to college, not very far away, Northwest Missouri State Teachers College in Maryville. In her yearbook picture, she looks like a cute little co-ed, maybe a little pudgy brown hair in that 1930s finger wave style kind of a pouty smile. She's only at college a few months before she drops out and starts working as a hairdresser. When she's 20, she marries Vern Hetty, 10 years her senior. He's a livestock broker from the area and they do well financially, especially considering this is the Depression. They live in St. Joseph, Missouri. Listener, St. Joe is a good-sized town about an hour north of Kansas City. 
Right now, as this podcast is being recorded, it's most famous for being the home of the training camp for the Kansas City Chiefs. For those of you who aren't familiar with American football, or as we call it, just football, the Kansas City Chiefs just won a big playoff game, and they are going to be in the Super Bowl championship next month. The Super Bowl is by far the most important sporting event in America. So this part of the country is thrilled over that. Go Chiefs! However, St. Joe started out as the gateway to the Wild West in America. It was the starting point for the famous Pony Express and the home of the Stetson Cowboy Hat Factory. The largest population recorded is for 1900 at about 100,000 when railroad traffic going through there was at its peak. But that number is a little questionable. The city fathers were trying to hype their growth at the time, so I think the number's probably a lot lower. Basically, St. Joe's population has been about 75,000 ever since 1900. It's kind of an interesting place to visit, especially if you're interested in the story of the American West. Bonnie and Vern settle into a comfortable bungalow at 1201 South 38th Street in St. Joe. The house is still there. Actually, it still looks almost the same as it did in the newspaper photos from 1953. They enjoy square dancing, and they breed pedigreed boxer dogs, and Bonnie loves horseback riding. On the outside, the marriage probably looks pretty good to most people, but it's a terrible marriage. They both drink way too much. Vern doesn't want any children, but Bonnie keeps getting pregnant, and he forces her to keep having abortions, which, of course, is very illegal and very risky at the time. That right there, to me, listeners, is a major sign that there's a very unhealthy pathology going on in this relationship. For some reason, as things go from bad to worse, they stay married, not getting divorced until 1952. A few years before the divorce, Bonnie inherits a sizable estate when her father dies worth over $40,000. And the Hetties are able to get some income renting out her father's land for agricultural purposes. Come to think of it, that might explain why they hang together till 1952. But by then, Bonnie and Vern are confirmed alcoholics, and Bonnie's a shopaholic, so they're also chronically broke. After Vern moves out, Bonnie decides to make money the old-fashioned way, prostitution. 
she sets up her boudoir to service clients, which she does on a regular basis when she's not hanging out at a nearby bar, the Pony Express. This bar is located in the nicest hotel in St. Joe, the glamorous Hotel Rubidoux, as the locals call it. It's R-O-B-I-D-O-U-X, so probably pronounced something like Robidoux, but the locals call it the Rubidoux, and it's gorgeous. Lots of beautiful marble and velvet. The premier steakhouse in town is located there, called the Black Angus. And that's saying something because St. Joe is famed for its steakhouse, which makes sense with all the beef really fresh going through there every day. Sadly, the hotel isn't there anymore. Bonnie uses the place mainly to get drunk and socialize, but she also often picks up clients there. One night, she makes friends with another barfly, Carl Hall. Soon, Carl moves into her home as both her companion and pimp. Carl Austin Hall is born 1919, so seven years after Bonnie's born. When they meet, he's 34 and she's 41. Looking at their pictures from the time, they both look older than that. My grandmother would have described Bonnie as she's been road hard and put away wet. She would have called Carl shifty-eyed. They're both pasty and doughy and just really unhealthy looking, which makes a lot of sense because they're both drunk all the time. Like Bonnie, Carl comes from a prosperous family, growing up in Pleasanton, a small town in Lynn County, Kansas. That's in southeastern Kansas, about two hours' drive from Kansas City. It's a rural area. Pleasanton's population sits at a pretty steady 1,200 from the 1900s on. Carl's father, John Hall, is a prominent attorney, and his mother, Zella, a leading socialite in the small town, active in church and social and community affairs. Carl is the couple's second son, but their first son dies very young, so Carl grows up a spoiled only child, but not of doting, loving parents. Carl's father dies when he's just 13, and his mother pretty much ignores him after that. She stays busy with her own activities and farms the upbringing of her only child out to other people. A local woman describes Zella as, quote, the most cold-blooded and hardest-hearted mother I have ever known, unquote. For high school, Zella sends Carl off to Kemper Military School in Boonville, Missouri, a hundred miles away. In its day, 
Kemper was one of the premier private boarding schools in America. In old movies, when you hear parents threaten to send their boys off to military school, this is the kind of place they mean. They call themselves the West Point of the West, the regime there patterned after the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. It's known as a place to instill discipline in unruly boys, and it seemed to work for Carl. For a couple of years, at least, then things start to slide downhill, lots of disciplinary problems. So Carl comes back to Pleasanton to finish his last year of high school, which seems to be the right move. He does well, graduates, and goes off to William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. That's in the Kansas City metro area. He flunks out and gets in trouble again for drinking and other things, including getting an underage girl pregnant. Zella uses her money and influence to take care of that sticky situation, but she's had enough and insists that he go into the military. Carl does. He enlists in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1938. Carl takes to the harsh discipline of the Marines like a duck to water. He becomes a distinguished officer who leads his men to victory in World War II at the Battle of Guadalcanal. No, he doesn't do that. He's a terrible, terrible Marine. He goes AWOL frequently and is always in the brig for drinking and fighting. Zella supports him for a while, but it won't be long before she cuts him off. This is a sample of the whiny letters he sends to her. I am glad you didn't send me the money I asked for. I would probably be in more trouble than I am now if you had. I am so sorry. I have caused you so much grief and trouble, dear. But I guess I just wasn't man enough to let liquor alone. If you disown me, I can't blame you. I am not fit to use the family name. God knows what punishment I'll get, but I rate everything I get. Only sorry I could not learn from previous lessons, but I guess I'm a little crazy. No, listeners, he's more than a little crazy. He's got all kinds of mental issues that will just keep getting worse. Still, it's World War II, and the Marines need all the good men they can get. In fact, they need all the men they can get, good or not. They allow Carl to re-enlist in 1942 and ship him off to the Pacific, where he sees a lot of action, including at Okinawa. Zala, his mother, well, she stops any contact with him and writes him out of her will, leaving everything to her mother. Yes, she cuts off her only child, 
who for all his faults is fighting honorably in World War II. She is a cold-hearted bitch. She dies before Carl comes home, a decorated and disinherited Marine war hero. Carl gets out of the Marines. I think the Marines are as happy to see him go as he is to leave. He doesn't do anything worthwhile. He gets drunk a lot and finds a new addiction, Benzedrine, known as Benny's back in the day, an amphetamine. At the time, it wasn't uncommon to find pharmacies that would sell you these under the counter. If you're an alcoholic who puts abusing amphetamines on top of being a drunk, well, that's his prescription for disaster, which is exactly what Carl Hall is when in 1946 his grandmother dies. Ignoring her daughter's wishes, Carl's grandmother leaves everything to Carl, and it's a sizable estate, estimated at the time to be worth $200,000, so well over $1,000 in today's money. The lawyer handling the estate becomes something of a father to Carl, and helps guide him to turn over a new leaf. They invest the money wisely. Carl settles down, becomes a successful attorney like his father, and a credit to the family, proving how wrong his terrible mother was. Ah, yeah, no, no. Maybe in a parallel universe that could happen, but not this one. Carl immediately cashes everything in and squanders the money on get-rich-quick schemes and while living. It does take him a few years to hit rock bottom. He moves to Kansas City, marries a woman named Irene, lives the high life. They buy a house at 818 West 59th Street Terrace, just off the prestigious Ward Parkway near the Country Club Plaza, if you know the area. It's a very nice little house. It's still there. Just a little over a mile. Let's see. Um, oh, I forgot to look this up. Uh, I think a kilometer and a half in the rest of the world from the Greenlease Mansion. Right about the time the money runs out in 1950, Irene divorces Carl. They don't have any children. By 1951, Carl's broke and <clears throat> turns to robbery, specializing in robbing taxi cabs. He's a terrible robber and so he doesn't have a very long career doing this either. He's soon arrested and spends a year and maybe a couple of months at Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri. Carl spends his time in prison getting clean, going to chapel, and working on his education. No, 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 no. He gets in trouble 
and lies around fantasizing about how to commit the perfect kidnapping. And he thinks he knows the perfect victims, the Greenlees family. In a tragic coincidence, the older Greenlee's son, Paul, who is just a couple of years older than Carl, attends Kemper Military School at the same time Carl does. It's a small school, um, so they clearly cross paths. However, Paul doesn't really remember Carl, other than to say later, he looks vaguely familiar. Certainly Carl knew all about how his, how wealthy his schoolmate's father is, and he recognizes the name when he moves to Kansas City. Carl loves fancy cars, so there's no doubt he visits Robert Sr.'s dealership. Carl spends his time in prison going through the Kansas City papers, researching the Greenlees family. He quickly learns there are two young children and decides to target one of them. When he gets out of prison, he continues planning and stalks the family. A St. Joseph, Missouri attorney, Barney Patton, is the one who helps Carl get his parole. So that's who Carl calls when he gets out. Barney gets him a job and a place to stay and tries to help him out. Poor guy, as my grandmother would say, no good deed goes unpunished. Carl can't keep a job or a roof over his head, and he ends up dragging Barney into one of the most sensational American kidnappings of the 20th century. The only thing Carl sticks with is his plan to kidnap one of the Greenlee's children. Originally, he does plan to kidnap Virginia Sue, but he decides she's too old and too big and won't be trusting enough. The younger Bobby becomes the primary target. Carl decides to take the child from his school via a ruse. That way there will be plenty of time to get away before anyone figures out what's happened. For this job, he thinks a woman will be less likely to be suspected of anything. So he starts looking for a pliable accomplice in St. Joe. Bonnie Hetty, as we've said, isn't hard to find. After all, they run in the same low-life loser circles. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Oh, and spoiler alert, listeners, Carl and Bonnie's plan from the beginning isn't to just kidnap Bobby Greenlees. The annals of crime contain few murders planned with the callous, cold-blooded deliberation shown by Hall and his companion in their preparations to kidnap and do away with Bobby Greenlease. Hall bought a revolver, bullets, plastic sheeting, a shovel, and a bag of lime in advance of the kidnapping. I had read some time in the past that hot lime would quickly eradicate 
human flesh and bone, he told agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The lime was stored in the basement of Mrs. Hetty's home in St. Joseph. Hall spent nearly an entire day digging a grave for the yet-to-be-kidnapped boy in Mrs. Hetty's backyard. After digging the grave on September 27th, he prepared the first ransom note with Mrs. Hetty's assistance. The letter is then mailed. Listeners, as I've said, everything, everything about this kidnapping and the kidnappers is just a mess. A weird mixture of cunning and just stupidity. Bonnie and Carl are drunk off their asses all the time. So this ransom note is a sloppy mess and getting the ransom will be a sloppy mess. Carl knows that Robert has car dealerships in Oklahoma, so he cleverly gets a copy of the daily Oklahoma newspaper to use to cut out things to put in the ransom notes. He thinks this will lead authorities to look for the kidnappers in Oklahoma. Not a terrible idea, but then he leaves his fingerprints all over the ransom notes. He's been in the military, so the FBI will have him identified within days of analyzing the notes. Then he uses the address 2600 Varroa Road, Kansas City, Missouri, to send the ransom note to. Well, the Greenleaf Mansion is at 2920 Verona Road, Mission Hills, Kansas. He can't even get the state right. Okay, continuing with the Post-Dispatch article. On September 28th, they got up early and drove to Kansas City in Mrs. Hetty's station wagon, stopping at a tavern for a drink or two. Listeners, these two are about to commit a capital crime, and they stop at a bar in the morning with a bunch of witnesses in her vehicle with her unruly boxer dog, by the way, in the back. Oh, what could go wrong with any of that? Back to the newspaper article. They park near the French Institute of Notre Dame du Sion after seeing Robert Greenlease drive up in his blue Cadillac and let Bobby out at the Catholic school. Mrs. Hetty and her co-conspirator drove to a Cat's Drug Store parking lot. Listeners, Cat's Drug was a large chain that started in Kansas City. The one Carl and Betty go to was at 40th and Main in downtown Kansas City. The building is still there, not a Cat's Drug Store, but you can see it 
was a big store with a big parking lot. There they waited while Mrs. Hetty took a taxicab back to the school. Bobby, a friendly child, took Mrs. Hetty by the hand when they left the school, and during the ensuing taxicab ride, talked about his two dogs and parrot. I told Bobby I was going to take him to see his daddy and that we would get some ice cream, Mrs. Hetty said in her confession. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Hall greeted the child. He was going to kill. Fine, the boy replied and got into the station wagon. They drove into Kansas and turned off the highway into a wheat field. Listeners, Bobby's murder takes place in this desolate wheat field, and um, it's coming up in the podcast. If you want to skip it, I understand. I tried writing my own article about it, but I know I'm just going to finish reading what's in the newspaper article. There's a very complete account in Haydn Rees book, Zero to the Bone. The whole awful thing is there from the confessions and the court records. It's gruesome, to say the least. They drive west from downtown Kansas City about 12 miles. This takes them into Kansas. I'm not quite sure where they stop. The area is not rural anymore. It's just west of Oak Park Mall, if you know Kansas City. But in... um, yeah, actually, let's see, 95th at um, at where Overland Parkway, Highway 69, crosses 95th Street. But in 1953, this is the Moody Farm. Bonnie doesn't want to be present when the murder takes place, so she goes off to walk the dog. Here we go if you want to skip a few seconds. After letting down the tailgate of the station wagon and spreading a plastic sheet in the back of the machine, Hall placed a short rope around Bobby's neck and tried to strangle him. Listen, this, listeners, really, this drunken idiot cut the strangling rope only one foot long, about 30 centimeters. It's too short. The boy struggled and kicked so violently, Hall abandoned the rope and used his revolver, he said. It's a thirty-eight. He fired two shots. The first bullet missed. Listeners... Unbelievable. This sounds like the movie Fargo, for Pete's sake. Sorry. But the second struck the boy in the head, killing him. Hall wrapped the body in a plast- in the plastic sheet, and Mrs. Hetty helped lift it into the station wagon. At some time during the stop in the wheat field, <coughs> she lost her small velvet hat. Bonnie 
and Carl take Bobby's small body back to her house in St. Joseph. They bury him in the little grave they've dug. Later, they'll cover the area with chrysanthemum plants. Then they rent a car to pick up the ransom in, not wanting to use Bonnie's car. In spite of Carl's bonehead play with the first ransom note, it does get to the Green Lease home in the Evening Post the day of the kidnapping. The police and the FBI have already been called in. The note asks for $600,000 ransom to be an unmarked $10 and $20 bills. So, you know, a $3 million ransom in today's money. In one of his I am a master criminal moments, Carl decides it would be harder to trace the money if it came from different parts of the country. So one of his demands is that the bills come from each of the 12 reserve banks in the U.S. The note instructs Robert Sr. to place an ad in the Kansas City Star when the money is ready. Bobby's parents are absolutely distraught, so Paul Greenleaf, Greenlease, Bobby's older brother, and Robert Letterman, Robert Sr.'s closest friend, take over the practical aspects of delivering the ransom. By this time, the kidnapping has been announced publicly, and the press is camped out in the driveway of the mansion. Bonnie and Carl pour over the papers and watch the news on TV and, of course, drink. The next day, Carl wakes up, hungover, no doubt, and doesn't see the ad he asked for in the paper. He worries about this a little. Maybe it'll be in the afternoon paper. Then, reading the newspaper about the kidnapping, he realizes he put the wrong address on the ransom note. He panics a little and takes off for Kansas City with Bonnie. He does another letter, which does have the right address this time, and he encloses a religious medal that he got off Bobby's little body to back up his claim that he's the real kidnapper. So in Kansas City, they mail the letter and call the Greenlease home. The people at the house reassure him, trying to keep him calm because he sounds like a drunken idiot, which he is. And they tell him, no, no, they got the note and the money is ready to be delivered. What follows is just a huge mess. All kinds of phone calls and, you know, sending letters with directions on where to drop the money. Um, And Paul and Bob Letterman try to do their best but it's a circus. They drop the money somewhere. Bonnie and Carl chase off after the money, but they can't find it, and they panic. At one point, a frustrated Bob Letterman says, 
this idea of climbing the tree and looking in a bird's nest for a note, then climbing on your belly somewhere looking for something under a rock with a red, white, and blue ribbon around it, that's getting tiresome. You know, you and I don't have to play ball that way. We can deal man to man. It's not for almost a week after the abduction that they finally make a, a successful arrangement to exchange the ransom money. It's to be dropped off a bridge over the Little Blue River in Lee Summit, Missouri. That's a suburb on the east side of Kansas City metro area. Carl tells the men to send someone to wait at a hotel in Pittsburgh, Kansas. That's at least a three-hour drive south of KC. There to wait for a telegram with directions on how to retrieve Bobby. The men drop the money off and go to a payphone where Carl has promised to call them. Bonnie and Carl finally get the money. Listeners, we can only imagine the heartbreaking roller coaster of emotions the family is enduring while all this is going on. The $600,000 is in a big duffel bag and weighs about 80 pounds or 36 kilograms. Early October 5th, 1953, Carl calls the payphone, assures Paul Bobby is fine, and the telegram is at the hotel in Pittsburgh. Not a word of that is true. There won't ever be a telegram, and Bobby's family will never see him alive again. As the Greenlees family and friends wait in unbearable suspense for word about Bobby from Pittsburgh, Carl gets spooked. While driving around, he suddenly starts to worry that somebody might have seen the rental car. Impulsively, very impulsively, he decides to flee immediately. Bonnie argues with him, but he ignores her and she passes out. Drunk and high on morphine, Carl speeds east toward St. Louis, Missouri. Bonnie and Carl on the lamb act just as stupidly as they have all along, but they have money to flash around. Carl starts to worry about the rental car being seen in a paranoid moment. He calls his only friend, his lawyer, Barney Patton, and asks him to go to the rental agency there in St. Joe and see if they can destroy the record of the rental. Well, Barney is not a drunken idiot. He reacts the way a normal person would and says, no, and why are you asking me to do that? To which Carl says, oh, just a little trouble I got into, never mind. Carl decides to get rid of the duffel bag the money is in and divide the ransom money. So he and Bonnie 
buy a suitcase and a footlocker at a St. Louis Army surplus store in an alleyway. Yes, in an alleyway in broad daylight. They take the duffel bag out of the trunk and transfer the money. As far as we know, nobody spotted this. Then they throw away the duffel bag and set out to find a hotel or rent-by-the-week apartment and a new car. Bonnie is really drunk and behaving pretty irrationally even for her. So Carl decides he better stash her and the money as fast as he can in a rented apartment. And he... He, he finds a pretty decent place to put her in. Carl finds a shopping area and gets some new clothes and a new used car, ditching the rental car. He heads back to the apartment. Bonnie's temporary digs are at 405 Arsenal Street. I don't know St. Louis at all, but this is apparently not a terrible place facing Tower Grove Park. Um, considering how drunk Bonnie is, it could just as well have been a flop house, but she complains, calling it a dump, and insists on being taken to a fancy hotel. Carl punches her on the jaw, and she's out, leaving him free to think. Whether him thinking is of much good, I don't know, but that's what he does. He's not worried that Bonnie will turn against him. He's manipulated her very well, at least he thinks so, even telling her he'll take the fall for everything if they get caught. I'll tell the cops I told you Bobby was my son and you thought we were taking him away from my mean ex-wife. That is the story he plans to tell. At least he tells her that's what he plans to say. Anyway, how um, Carl isn't sure that she won't attract unwanted attention while they're on the run because she behaves so erratically and is always calling attention to herself. He tells one of the detectives later that Bonnie, quote, might see a man out on the street she liked, invite him in, and give him a thousand dollars, unquote. He decides he is going to, okay, listeners, I know this is all crazy. You'd think with all the planning, Carl would have thought about what to do with the money and where to go after the kidnapping, but apparently he hasn't. So try to hang in there. He decides he will hire a call girl to mail a letter to Barney from him from Los Angeles. That will cause law enforcement to concentrate the search for the kidnappers out in California and take the heat off him and Bonnie for a while. So he sets out to accomplish this. 
But first, he stops at a bar for a while. He meets a cab driver named Howard Lewis and asks him to get him a prostitute. Lewis says he doesn't do that kind of thing, but he might know somebody who can help him out. They set off, and Carl suddenly remembers the ransom money is back at the apartment with Bonnie, who might wake up and do heaven knows what. So he asks Lewis to take him to the apartment first. And he and Lewis load the footlocker and the suitcase into the cab. Yes, it's still all broad daylight, and he doesn't know this Lewis from Adam, but okay, fine. Carl leaves Bonnie a note. Quote, had to move bags in a hurry as report came in on radio. Girl next door looked funny, couldn't wake you. Stay here, and I'll call when I can. Stay where you are, baby. I will see you in short order. Tell them you are not well, and they will bring you food. Just say your husband was called away unexpectedly, unquote. Then he tucks $2,500 into her purse and leaves. The cab drives around a while, and they finally meet up with a cab driver named John Hager, who works at the Ace Cab Company. These two things, uh, John Hager and that he works for the Ace Cab Company will be important to us later. He's the kind of cab driver who can help Carl find a call girl. In fact, he is an ex-con and Sandra Let's see. No, sorry, I lost my place. In fact, he is an ex-con who is also a part-time pimp to a prostitute named Sandra O'Day. Hager deposits Carl and Sandra and the ransom money. So now we've got two more unsavory characters carting this footlocker and suitcase full of money around at the Coral Court Motel in St. Louis. The Coral Court Motel was quite a place to stay in its day. It was located at 7755 Watson Road off the famous U.S. Route 66, if you're familiar with the St. Louis area. <coughs> Sorry, it was on a U.S. National Registry for Historic Places at one time as an example of Art Deco design. Um, let's see. Sorry, where was I? Art Deco design. Oh, but it was demolished in 1995 for a historic housing development. They did manage to save one of the two-unit buildings of the Coral Court Motel. It's in the National Transportation Museum in St. Louis. It's really cool-looking. The rooms are on either side of a double garage, very, very streamlined, lots of metal and glass bricks. Carl hires Hager to be his driver for a few days, giving him $2,500, saying, quote, I trust you two kids. Sometimes I go on a bender for 
three or four days, I like to have a good time and maybe spend two or three thousand dollars, unquote. Oh, nothing suspicious about any of this, right? Mm. Hager and O'Day are fine with that. And they are both wondering about this mystery man who keeps flashing money around. And for sure, they are both wondering what's in the footlocker and the suitcase. Oh, just serum samples. I'm a pharmaceutical rat, Carl tells them. Hager does some errands for Carl and then goes home for the night. Sandra tries to do what she thinks she's been hired for, but Carl tells her he just wants her to mail a letter for him. They both finally drink a lot, pass out, and sleep the rest of whatever's left of the night. The next day, Hager does a couple of errands Carl has tasked him with. He rents a car and buys a briefcase and a suit bag. Then he goes to the Coral Court Motel, where Carl asks him to take Sandra to a cab stand where she can get a ride to the airport. He's just given her a letter to mail for him in L.A., along with $1,000 travel expenses. In the cab, O'Day tells Hager, I've got something big to tell you. This guy is loaded with dough. He opened one of the suitcases, and there must be a million dollars in it. Don't tell him I told you, because he made me swear I wouldn't tell you. Yes, really. Carl catches her, but he believes her when she says she won't tell anybody. Oh, Sandra is not going to California. She's going to check who's the letters, who the letter's going to, this Barney in St. Joe, and she, see if she can figure out who the sender is. She's already opened the letter. It read, Dear Barney, things are not as good as they seem. I may have to leave the country by ship or plane. And when we meet in the future, maybe things will be better. Carl. She knows the initials C-A-H, Carl Austin Hall, inside Carl's hat. Hager asks her to send him a telegram at the cab company he works for, Ace Cab, if she figures anything out. With that, Sandra takes off. Back at the Coral Court, Carl gets dressed and puts $20,000 in the new briefcase. When Hager returns, Carl asks him to get him some phony identification and a nice apartment, someplace classy, where he can stay for about a month. Hager says sure, and Carl, and helps Carl put all the luggage in the trunk of the rental car. The two agree to meet about 4 p.m., and Carl drives off. Hager, well, he starts thinking about things. He thinks for a while, and he's pretty sure that Carl must be involved in the Bobby Greenlee's kidnapping. That's been all over the news for days. The money that Sanders just seen has to be the ransom money. 
the problem is he's not sure what to do about it. Plus, he's a little worried Carl will take off in the rental car that he rented in his boss, Joe Costello's name. So, this Joe Costello, you've probably already guessed, is a St. Louis mobster. It's no coincidence that our ex-con, who's pretty shady, works for a place like that. And in reality, St. Louis is a pretty corrupt place, so probably all the cab companies are mobbed up. But um, Joe Costello's a pretty heavy hitter there in, with, there in St. Louis with the mob, so Hager's afraid of him, and he thinks it's probably a good idea to get him involved in a really big score like this one. So they meet Joe and Hager and discuss how to get their hands on the money and at the same time avoid getting arrested as accomplices in the kidnapping. Hager assures Costello that Sandra won't be a problem. She's off on a wild goose chase in St. Joe. Costello arranges for an apartment for Carl at the Townhouse Motel. This is an apartment complex of the Congress Hotel there in St. Louis, and so apartment 324 is ready for Carl Hall and the ransom money. Costello, for his part, gets in touch with a close associate, Lieutenant Lewis A. Shoulders of the St. Louis Police Department. Well, I mentioned how corrupt St. Louis is. Yeah, um, the government, businesses, um, pretty much everything, including the St. Louis Police Department. It's notoriously corrupt in 1953, and Shoulders is a crooked cop. There are varying accounts of how the plot is actually hatched, but essentially they, the two of them, maybe others, decide that Carl should be arrested. Somehow, a good part of the ransom money will disappear and Hager will become the hero cabbie who turned in Bobby Greenlease's kidnapper. All in all, not a bad plan. All that's known about Carl's movements is that he buys a two he buys two sixteen gallon big garbage cans, some plastic, and a shovel that afternoon. Clearly, he's decided he needs to bury the ransom money. It also appears that he drives around the area of the Coral Court Motel for a while, looking for a good spot to do that. 
The odometer on the rental car shows that he puts about 80 miles on the car that afternoon. I forgot to look that up. Let's see, about um, 130 kilometers, I think. After Shoulders and Hager meet up, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't Shoulders, this is Hager and Carl meet up, they move Carl and the ransom money into the townhouse hotel to the new apartment. Carl asks Hager to get him a woman for the night. Hager says, sure. When I get back, I'll knock on the door and say, this is John. Then you'll know it's okay to open up. Then Hager takes off. With no real plans to do any of this. Okay, listeners, this episode is getting pretty long, and there's still a ways to go. I'm going to make this part one and get it posted up. So I'll do that and then record part two and get it out there a little bit later. So thank you for listening, as always. There are lots of links in the show notes. I'd love for you to subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. It would be wonderful if you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders at blueberry.net. And you can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, part two soon, I promise, please don't murder anybody, and I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. <laughs>